Welcome to the HCI Family of Podcasts, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We share our own original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with the HCI family of podcasts. Welcome to the conversation today. Thank you, John. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from Tampa, Florida. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about the future of healthcare generally, but zone in and, and zoom in more specifically on health insurance and really what this means for employers and employees within an organizational context. As we get started, I wanted to share Dr. Noor's bio with everybody. Noor Ali is a Bangladeshi American medical doctor turned health insurance expert from New York City. She currently runs her own health insurance consulting practice out of Tampa, offering health care insurance strategy to entrepreneurs all over the country. Now, Noor, is there anything you would like to specifically highlight from your own background or personal context before we dive on in? Um, no, this is fantastic. Let's go. Let's start the conversation. Okay. Well, let's, just because I'm curious, this kind of career transition that you've gone through, if you could just speak for a, a moment about, you know, transitioning from the the practicing medical doctor space to insurance, health insurance yeah. consultant. Sure, sure. Yeah, very popular question. I love answering this. So um, originally from New York City, um, I had a really fast track trajectory ever since I was little. Everybody knew that I was going to grow up and be a doctor. And that's just what I did. When I graduated high school, I went straight to an accelerated medical program, skipped undergrad. Um, I have a degree in internal, a dual degree in internal medicine and general surgery. I can also do all uh, OBGYN cases. So I can treat everything under the sun. Really, my skills are in the general surgery space. Um, so I, I trained, I studied, I practiced abroad in my home country in Bangladesh. And I was doing fantastic in my career. I was doing really, really well, very promising. Um, and then in my final year of medical school, I got married uh, to someone back in the States. So after I finished my training, I had to come back to the US. And the way it works for foreign um, medical graduates like myself is we don't have to go through medical school again, but we have to pass a series of licensing exams in order to, to practice surgery in the States. So the first of those series of exams was a really big disconnect for me at that level level and stage of my career where I was, you know, practicing clinician for several years. Um, so I studied for two years and I really struggled with that exam. Um, ultimately, I, I didn't pass. I failed it by one question, which was about three points at the time. And that put me in a really, really dark space in, you know, the worst time of my life where I lost all sense of professional identity. Uh, mm -hmm. I had no idea who I was, what to do. I couldn't do any type of work outside of medicine because that's all I learned and that's all I knew. Um, and at that point, I, I had a decision to make and I really wanted to win. So we made some changes in our life. We moved down to Florida to see if we would start a family, you know, have be with my in-laws and just get a change of pace. Uh, but no one was was offering me a job, John, because on paper, I just look like a high school graduate, even though I'm, you know, quite qualified um, surgeon in the medical space. So that made me feel even worse. And the only opportunity that I received was a sales role for health insurance. And it, at that time, and at that point in my life, I was I also had a master's in public health, I had a graduate certificate in infection disease control and prevention. So I'm this highly qualified over over educated. Mm -hmm 
qualified person in the sales environment when a lot of my peers and colleagues don't have near, you know, the level of qualification that I do. Um, but I had to make it work. I had to figure it out. Uh, you know, I needed a win in my life. And that was about five years ago. And since then, I've worked on developing a personal brand, really deconstructing the way that customers, you know, purchase health insurance and reinventing that uh, journey for the customer. And, you know, that's what brought me here today. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Uh, what an interesting background. And I think we all have gone through ups and downs and tangents and sh side shifts and like all sorts of uh, meandering paths to get to where we are today. I know I certainly have. Um, so much of what you were sharing, though, I have nothing to do with anything in the medical space, like much of what you were describing. I'm like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense to me. Like I've experienced some yes. similar things. And I think many uh, in the audience have as well, um, that we all you know, find ourselves at different points in life having to pivot and go in directions perhaps we didn't previously think about. Mm -hmm. um, but it, my, in my experience, it usually ends up opening doors to entirely new possibilities that are awesome that I never would have previously considered that I'm, you know, you know, now, you know, I can look at where I'm at today and look back 10 years. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that other thing didn't work that I was so disappointed about at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm, I'm just so glad that I was able to shift and transition and do something different. So anyways, you're wonderful. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Now, yeah, as we, as we dive on in and talk more about this, this health insurance consulting space, the strategy space, mm -hmm. um, I find that in and of itself, just very interesting because we know in the workplace, one of the biggest, you know, year over year increasing expenses for employers is healthcare um, insurance coverage for employees. And I haven't looked like super recently, but it seemed like every year is going up 30 plus yeah. percent uh, right. in terms of, of the, the cost to the employer. And that has been for increasingly kind of watered down coverage. Sure. So yeah. poor coverage um, with more expense placed on the employee, and it's still so expensive for the employer. And that's been the dynamic in the US for so long, that we really do have to think strategically about how we're going to offer the best possible benefits in a sustainable way. Yes, yes, fantastic observation, John. And you're absolutely right. Um, that is the trend that we've been seeing. And it's an, it's a major um, issue, right? Um, the value that I provide as a health insurance strategist or consultant is really boiling down to the core of insurance and, and problem solving. And that word is risk, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that it, things can be expensive or feel out of control or where you're feeling like you're not getting enough value for your money for that premium dollar you're paying is because you're not optimizing risk enough. And that's mm -hmm. what the insurance companies are doing. And that's their job is to minimize their risk, even though they're in the business of risk, you know, collect as much premium as possible and pay out as less claims as possible. So we take mm -hmm. that same model of that risk analysis and I take it and I put it on the consumer side and I say, well, how do we leverage the position that you're at, at right now where you live? Uh, what your income level is at, what stage of business you're at, what are your medical needs? Are you trying to get a surgery or just going in for once a year checkups? And combine that with that level of medical risk and see if we can optimize and get a plan that's going to leverage that situation. So that's really the crux of my work and, and what I like to do. Now, you mentioned the context of big employers and employee-employer relationship. That sometimes is, is hard to beat and battle because if you are working for a large corporation that's over 50 employees, that really risk is diluted enough where you're probably going to get the best deal that you can possibly get. Yeah. What my role is really, if you don't have access to those great employer or, or corporate benefits and you mm -hmm. have to 
figure out health insurance for yourself, or you have a much smaller team that you're part of where they cannot dilute that risk and give you competitive uh, health insurance benefits, that's where really I, I come in and do that individual risk assessment. Yeah, interesting. And I'm thinking back to kind of the earlier days. So I'm a professor, right? And so now for the last 15 plus years, you know, I've been at a university and I have tremendous coverage. <laughs> like it's it's probably about as good as I could hope to have anywhere. Right. Um, right. And and so I'm really appreciative of that. But back, if you, if you go back in time further, you know, when I was going through grad school and PhD and all of that, um, and we, we, it, I had a, a small young family and, you know, we looked into doing university coverage, you know, the university provide healthcare coverage and it, it was still really expensive and not particularly feasible uh, for us. So we ended up actually doing individual coverage, uh, which was crazy expensive, but less expensive than what it would have been for family coverage through the university. And uh, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> Shall I just yeah. say like, this was at a time in our lives too, where we were, you know, I have six children, so we were having babies and, and, you know, it, it was just, it was expensive. It was hard, right. um, difficult to navigate because there's just so much kind of confusion yes. in the space. Yes. Um, yes. It's, it's so much like apples to oranges comparisons. Yes. Like all of that was so hard. And I have to admit, once I like finished my PhD and I got my first professor job, I'm like, sweet. You know, one of yes. the biggest headaches of my life has just yes. gone away. Um, but a lot of people don't find themselves in that space. They find themselves where I was, you know, yeah. over 15 years ago. Or like you said, maybe they're an entrepreneur and they're providing their right. own coverage. Maybe you're you're a small startup and you only have a dozen employees. Uh, and it's it's a totally different ballgame when you're talking about not being able to dilute the risk like you're like you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for sharing that story. A lot of many, many people share that perspective, John, when they have to figure it out for themselves and their family, and they just don't know either where to start or what to do. And I love that you use that term. It's not an apples to apples. It's an apples to orange comparison, which makes it even more harder. Yeah. So what are some of those things that you focus in on when you're having these conversations with with individuals or families that are trying to assess like what's going to make more sense for them? The, the point to begin, the first point of assessment is really what market to begin in. So if you are shopping or have to make your own health insurance purchasing decisions, there's two markets you can go about doing that, the public healthcare marketplace and the private healthcare marketplace. And these are two completely dichotomous worlds with little to no overlap. Again, that mm-hmm. apples to oranges comparison. So how do we determine which market to shop in? We're actually going to start out with income. That's going to be the first point to start because so health insurance in America, it's federally regulated, but state sponsored, which means every state has their own mandates and laws on how they want to, you know, govern and how they want to do things. And then we've got some states that just want to trash all the rules and want to do things their own ways. There's California has covered California, Maryland has the Maryland exchange, Uh, we'll take the exclusions out of the picture. But in general, if you are having to do your own health insurance, and you are or can show lower income, the public marketplace is a great place to start. Here's what I mean by lower income. Under $20,000 income in America, you can qualify for Medicaid, which is free health insurance. Amazing. Maybe not the quality, a top tier quality, but if it's free health care, you know, you have access to that. For household size of one, income between 20 to roughly 50, 55, $60,000 a year, you can qualify for a sliding scale subsidy from the government in the form of a tax credit, temporary tax credit, that's going to shave off significant dollars of your premium. Again, a great way to save money. Now, what's important to note is that when you exceed that qual- uh, 
excuse me, that subsidy qualifying income threshold, it's best to probably pull out of the public market and consider something on the private side. Because at that time, what you're experiencing is a full premium plan, government not, help, not helping you out with any portion of that premium, very high deductibles, which is what yeah. insurance carriers on the marketplace have to do to remain profitable because they're taking on so much risk. They're insuring the healthy person like yourself, John, as well as the chronic diabetic who's taking insulin shots every week. So they have to have these high deductibles. Um, and the networks can be quite limiting on the public market. So managed care networks like HMO plans, which might not afford you the freedom and flexibility if you're a digital nomad and want to travel and you know want access to high quality doctors. So yeah. public marketplace is great for lower income, chronically ill. Private options are going to be a lot better for you if you are not qualifying for a subsidy, higher income, and generally healthy and don't overuse insurance. Yeah, interesting. And maybe, maybe that kind of gets me to what my next question is around preventative care, you know, versus the more reactive response. It seems like in the US, we're not very good at preventative. It seems like um, we tend to be more I mean, you, you know, I'm sure all the stats, but like emergency room visits or, or, um, after hours, Instacare, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of these, these other things, you know, they're always going to happen. You're always going to have emergencies. You're going to have things that prop up. I, I have a daughter who had an emergency middle of the night surgery a couple of years ago. Like there's no way to prepare for that. Uh, it just happened. It was scary. We got it taken care of. She's fine. Um, but it was scary, right? Those yeah. there, there will always be those things, but there are so many things that we we're, because we're not very good from a preventative care standpoint culturally in the U.S. It seems um, it ends up being more expensive because we're going to the emergency room or we're, we're doing things in a way that uh, are are responsive to the symptoms or the chronic illnesses that people might have rather than proactively managing them. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, and that's true. That's a, that's a fact, John. But I will say, you know, the optimistic side of me has to point out that um, since COVID, some of these stats have turned a little bit. Um, oh, that's and great. Yeah, a few things that uh, contributed to that turning is the advent of virtual care, right? So during mm-hmm. COVID, nobody was willing to go sit in an emergency room for any type of issue, big or small. You know, if you have COVID, you had to. But um, so what they did was they turned to virtual care platforms. So an urgent care type visit where you don't have to go in, you can do it from the comfort of your home. Um, and that, that's that been great. That's been great for healthcare because when you... When you seek care for, let's say, a headache or a stomachache at an emergency room, there's an entire list of workup that just must be done. Labs, testing, imaging, right? You can't avoid it. And what that does is it, it jacks up the cost of healthcare. It jacks up your bill on the patient side. And it just puts a burden on the healthcare system. Because if you're coming into an emergency room setting, you have to get checked out. They're not going to let you go without doing that workup. So to alleviate that burden, some strategies are, well, instead of emergency care, can you go to an urgent care for this visit? You know, are you actively bleeding? Can we avoid an emergency room visit and can we go to urgent care? And then a step further is, well, if you can go to urgent care, can you do it virtually? Can you just speak to a doctor over your phone and take care of it that way? So that kind of step down management has really been beneficial to reducing the burden of, you know, reducing the administrative cost burden of healthcare on both the consumer and all also on the provider side, which I think has been fantastic. Yeah, that, that's wonderful to, to learn more about that shifting trend. Um, anything else, you know, if we take a look now from, you know, a societal level kind of cultural element, like I was just referring to, but even from an organizational standpoint, even if we're talking about smaller organizations that are trying to manage risk, keep costs lower, um, 
what what could you know an organizational leader in a small business do to help create a culture of sure. preventative care and just yeah. like overall holistic wellness of their people that not only of course is great because it means you have more healthy people uh, that means they're more productive they they show up they do the work like there's all those benefits but your, your healthcare premiums go way down yeah, <laughs> at that yeah. point so it's like a dual impact right yeah, yeah. So there's a few things, few tips I have there to, to prioritize that preventive care over reactive um, care. And we'll, we'll, we see, we are definitely seeing the shift. I sense it on the calls that I have with my small teams and business owners who are like, I care about my, my team's wellness. I want them to pursue preventive care. So on the insurance side, what we're seeing is a lot more incentivization for seeking preventive care. So all ACA uh, public marketplace plans, you'll see that preventive care is covered at 100%. So your once a year checkup, any type of screening visit is always going to be covered at 100% percent, which is awesome. But sometimes yeah. that's still just not enough for someone to go in and proactively make that appointment and get that annual checkup. So on top of that, we're seeing incentives like you know, a Walgreens gift card for, for vitamins, or here's, you know, an actual gift. You know, if you go, you're going to, we're going to give you a gift or a cash uh, gift card for going and getting your annual checkup. Um, and then on the small teams employer side, I see a lot of um, emphasis on prioritizing benefits that are not strictly health and medical, uh, but, you know, mental health and wellness. Do we have access to low cost accessible therapy? Virtual therapy is again, trending upwards um, and offering benefits such as wellness classes, gym fitness, things that are very non-traditional, but what the team members and your employees care about. So prioritizing that incentivizing that has also been a trend I've seen. Yeah. Interesting. Wonderful. So, you know, again, if, We've talked a little bit about some of the the key questions you need to start with if you're trying to think through either for yourself and your family or for your small business, what you need to be considering. We've talked about some of the holistic care components, um, the overall wellness of your people, creating that culture. Uh, we've we've talked about some of the trends in the space. Where do you see things going, you know, say in the next year to five years as we look at the future of healthcare, the future of health insurance? Sure. Thank you. That's a fantastic question. Um, I think the the model, the crux of the U.S. economy being, you know, capitalistic in nature, that's not going to change. So I don't see any like framework or structural changes around it. So there's always going to be competing interests with the private sector, private insurance companies and government and public sector and what they're trying to do uh, under the healthcare for all umbrella or whatever policy there is to encompass as much of the population in an equitable manner. So I do see these conflicting interests to continue. I don't think that's going to go away. What I am seeing, like the power and the change is going to be in the small business economy. So I see smaller business owners and team members getting gaining more more influence and power and control over how to handle health insurance for their team members for and, and how they present that as an option and prioritize that. Yeah, excellent. Any Anything else you're seeing, you know, the telehealth trend, which I think is really great, um, you know, from a medical doctor perspective, I don't know how much training you received, unlike remote surgery type of technologies or any of those types of things. I don't know how, where we're at with that. I, I see things about it. I read articles every now and then you'll see something in popular media, popular press and movies or TV, but like where, where do you say we're at today versus where you think we might be in five years in that space? And what implications will that have for health coverage, you know, either individually, family or within organizations? 
Sure. I don't know if I'm the best qualified to answer this, John, because my training where I received, um, if you know anything about uh, Bangladesh, it's a very, very low resource country. So I've gotten tremendous clinical practice, but I was trained to treat with my hands, not technology. So there was a point in my career where I didn't have access to digital x-rays or any type of um, high tech imaging. And I had to diagnose and treat with my hands. I had to diagnose liver disorders uh, just using my hands or any type of GI disorders. Um, so I might not be the best qualified to answer this question, personally, but what I am seeing is, uh, uh, is AI. I think I would be remiss if I didn't bring this into our conversation in healthcare and the role of AI in healthcare. The, what I see is I think it can be a great diagnostic tool, but at the end of the day, the patient-doctor relationship, it has to go back to patient-centric, heart-centric, and using your hands to touch and heal. I don't think we should be using AI to treat. It may be helpful in diagnosing, but there's a line, there's a margin where we have to say that, okay, th let's go back to the basics. The reason that we're in this profession or the patient has come to us is to be taken care mm -hmm. of, treated with love and care. And I don't think there's any space for AI at that, after that point. Yeah. And from the diagnostic standpoint, um, that's, that's really interesting and to, and to inform, um, you know, a, a doctor's, uh, analysis of say I do a CT scan or something like that like doctors are trained to notice you know very detailed specific things um, and I want their judgment involved in that uh, evaluation but if we can have AI that also is trained specifically towards understanding and interpreting you know those outputs uh, you know that's great because it, it's like essentially a second set of eyes um, and and I, I can it seems like that's only going to be helpful uh, especially if we have, you know, healthcare shortages, you know, staff and doctors and nurses and all of that in the U.S., which it, I I think that's still, you know, a, a predominant challenge that we face. Uh, and so trying to find a way to couple the human side of the doctor-patient relationship and, and the care that is received with the efficiencies and the productivity gains of utilizing various technologies and AI uh, seems like a really great thing. And it, it seems like that would help to reduce the cost of, of visits and of procedures and diagnostic procedures and such. Um, maybe that's overly naive and optimistic of me to think that that would reduce the cost. <laughs> I don't know. Thoughts along those lines? Um, I, I think it's too early to predict, or I, I don't, I don't know if, I mean, I can present a hypothesis. I just feel like it's not a, a very sound or educated hypothesis. Mm. In theory, sure, it, it sounds good. But if that AI usage for diagnostic is treating is go leading to downline problems where one, you're not really mm. solving the problem because you're misdiagnosing or yeah. two, you're not you're not from a practitioner, a medical practitioner standpoint, you don't know enough about your patient to feel confident in the decision of your treatment, then we're back to square one. What sure. was the use, what was the point of using AI to diagnose where you don't feel confident with that diagnosis? And I know as a, you know, a care provider, as a medical pr practitioner, I, you know, I'll get a report from a radiologist, but at the same time, I'll say, please send me the imaging as well. So I can take a look and I can make sure, hey, did, I, did the radiologist miss something that maybe my interpretation wouldn't miss? So Taking my perspective into it, I don't think there's going to be a huge, you know, difference or jump. I think it can be um, additive, uh, but I don't think it's going to replace anything. Yeah, great. And I'm wondering if, if you know, the, the U.S. system of healthcare uh, and insurance is a bit unique in the world. Um, I'm wondering if you, if you are noticing any shifts and trends in terms of like the systemic approach 
to, to how the system is here in the United States. Uh, and if you, if you, you know, again, this is crystal ball prognosticating, yeah. we don't know. Right. Um, but you know, any thoughts on like where we might see changes happen within the system and the structure of healthcare in the U S and what that means for insurance moving into the next half decade? Yeah. Um, I think I, I touched on this a little before. I actually don't predict any systemic changes uh, in healthcare because of the the economic framework that we're in, John. So, being part of a capitalistic economy, we have we're always going to have these conflicting interests with private sector, private insurance companies, and government policy trying to um, come up with an equitable solution under healthcare for all. And because of this conflict. Uh, I don't see any systemic changes. I feel like it's just going to be in this gridlock that we've experienced. And um, again, that's just going to shift the power to that small business economy where there's a lot more creative space to play and come up with creative solutions, right? Where they're not locked in by these monopolized companies and these mm -hmm. big policy that, that's going to impact at a higher systemic level. Yeah. And I, and I sure wish things like healthcare hadn't, haven't become so politicized, you know, we're so mm -hmm. polarized and mm -hmm. th this is a problem. You know, I, I, from, I, this isn't a political podcast. And I don't want to get into politics, but, you know, I think about myself in my own kind of politics and social views and such, and how that compares with say my father. And sure. we don't agree on much. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot that we, we have strong differences of opinion about, but when it comes to healthcare, you know, and he has lots of, uh, you know, he's older and he has lots of uh, challenges and, and health issues and such. I mean, he, he pretty much agrees with me, you know, yes. uh, on, on the challenges and the frustrations and the, the limitations of like our current system. And he would love to see change. And, and so it's like one of these things that I think there's a lot of agreement um, throughout the U S around the challenges with our current system, yet it's become so politicized. It's become so mm. polarizing and it's, there's so much gridlock in Congress. Like, I just don't even know how we can move forward, mm. um, it, you know, and anytime soon with that. Yeah. And, and, you know, because of the monopolies, I'm not so sure how quickly we can move forward, you mm. know, in terms of the marketplace responding mm -hmm. and reacting mm -hmm. and, and, and mm -hmm. adjusting. And so I, I want to be optimistic about it. Um, and, and maybe it is, you know, these smaller startups and smaller, mm -hmm. um, uh, offerings that are, you know, more creative and innovative, different approaches, completely different approaches that are going to be the answer to some of this gridlock and some of these challenges. I sure hope so, uh, for, because I want people to be healthy. I want people to, yeah. to have care. I want people to be, to live their best lives and to be productive employees and to help yeah. their organization succeed. Like it's in everyone's best interest to have that. Um, and so hopefully we can find a way to get to that place um, as a society, as a country, uh, and, and within organizations, hopefully we can do that as well. Well, Nor, this has just been a great conversation. I know there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, this is a really complex issue, um, but it's, it's a great thing to explore and to, to just think about. And I would really encourage anyone listening, you know, whether it's your own individual or family care, whether it's in your organization, you know, take the time to pause and think about the quality of the care and the expense behind the care that you're receiving uh, think about the culture of holistic wellness within your organizations, within your home, and what you can do, you know, strategically to to really bolster that. Um, it's going to be to everyone's benefit if we can accomplish that. Nor, before we uh, wrap up, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, your team, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. 
Thank you so much, John. This is a this was a fantastic conversation. I just want to say how much I want to um, honor and appreciate you for asking me these questions. Um, it means a lot to me that you know you, you value my opinion and my perspective on, on healthcare. So if you guys want to reach out to me for a health insurance consultation, if you've got a tough problem and you don't know what to do, I'd be more than happy to help you with that strategy. It all starts with a 15-minute consultation with me. You can find more information about my services and how I can help you on my website. That's drnorhealth.com. D-R-N-O-O-R-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. I'm also very active on social media. So find me on LinkedIn, follow me on Instagram. You can follow my life and stories um, on Instagram at dr.noorhealth. That's it, Dr. Nor Health. Wonderful. Nor, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Nor can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe and please join us again soon.